Welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell, and normally in this part, I would tell you that we are looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. However, I have some very exciting news that I will be able to share with you in the next episode of the podcast. We no longer are looking for a sponsor, but today I am chatting with Jeff Knight. And let me tell you, just wait for the story about Chopper Reed. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with a gangster turned opera singer, Jeff Knight. Jeff Knight, mate, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, you probably have one of the most incredible or remarkable sort of life stories um, that I've ever sort of come across. And there, there are going to be people that are listening that, that won't know know you or know what you do. So I think maybe the best way to do this is almost just to do it in a linear fashion, you know. So mm-hmm. start at the start, which, in, you know, I understand you you grew up on the, on the West Coast in, in Westport here. Uh, yeah, yeah, West Coast, South Island boy. Uh, I was an adopted child. My parents were British uh, immigrants. They'd come over. Met on the boat, actually, at the captain's table, and um, adopted two boys, so I was number two. I had an older brother, adopt a brother as well, and, uh, yeah, my father was a horticulturalist in nursery. They adopted you when they got here, sorry. They did. Oh, yeah, it wasn't on yeah. the boat. Yeah, they yeah, met no, on the they, boat, adopted you when you got here, yeah. Yeah, apparently the remit and the message was uh, someone strong who's be a good hard worker, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> basically it. Dad turned 20 acres of land into... It was basically swamp into, you know, good land and 10 of it became a nursery, which was really about propagation, um, lots of natives. Mm -hmm. And then he was supplying the East Coast, so all of the retail outlets on Christchurch. uh, That's what he did. And then on the other 10 acres we had animals, lots of calves. Yeah. So he grew up as a farmer? Well, kind of, well, more of a horticulturalist Mm -hmm. slash, you know, (laughs) We had a hobby farm. So we'd, we'd end up with, you know, freezer full of uh, meat and uh, the rest to get marched down to the abattoirs, which was a bit distressing to a wee fellow who mm. loved feeding time with the calves, yeah, yeah. you know, mixing the milk and, and all those sorts of things. So. Yeah. You obviously, were, you adopted when you were a baby, were you? Like you don't yeah. know your original parents or anything? I know who, well, I met my birth mother and oh. birth father and oh, yeah. I've got a half-sister and uh, a half-brother still alive and mm-hmm. I had another half-brother. So... Um, but I, I didn't know I was adopted until I was about six. Oh, really? And that was an interesting experience because my birth father, was his name was uh, Lyubomir Angelic from Montenegro. And um, Montenegrins are often well known for being tall and dark, you know, very swarthy. And, uh, you know, I'm about 6'4". If I stand up really straight and stretch a little, I'll hit 6'5", maybe. And um, I was average height. Uh, I was over there in 2015. And then on my mother's side, from my birth mother's side, she was, um, there was some Israeli blood on my grandmother's side and Irish on the grandfather's. Okay. So, yeah, a bit of trivia here. My grandfather was, uh, my birth grandfather was Norman Fuller, who was the 1938 New Zealand golf champion as well. Really? But I didn't know any of this stuff. Yeah, I of had course, no yeah. idea. I was yeah. just this little boy at school, at Westport South School, and in summer I would just go brown and... There are only two uh, Māori families in Westport at the time that I knew of, the Tainui's and the McDonald's, and um, they were just really good at rugby. 
which was, you know, a pretty big currency. So everybody seemed to think that I was a Maori. Well, then I say Maori because mm. that's how we used to pronounce it, right? Mm. Um, and I remember these little boys would pick on me, you know, you're a Maori, you're a Maori. And I was quite a sensitive child. Um, and I remember going home to my parents and going, what's a Maori? I didn't, I didn't know. Mm. <laughs> and Dad just said, well, they're the local indigenous people. And I said, well, so why does everyone call me that? Well, you're very dark. And why am I dark? And then they said, well, you're adopted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, what's that? Uh, well, you know, they tried to explain it to me and it kind of went pretty much over my head. And I went, yeah. oh, okay. And away I went. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of, my dad's adopted and he didn't find out until he was, um, no, he didn't, he found his his birth mother, I think, sort of like well into his 50s. So quite a unique experience. Um, so I was 24. And when I found my birth parents was sort of part of uh, uh, finding myself, mm -hmm. you know, when I'd, um, well, recently exited being a fully-fledged patch member of New Zealand's largest motorcycle yeah. gang at the time, the yeah. Highway 61, at the yeah. age of 23. So uh, in that moment uh, following when I made that decision, um, the world opened up and uh, the big question was how did I end up here? Mm -hmm. Who am I really? And this journey of self-discovery began yeah, at the age of 23 and unpacking the past. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And so let's, let, let's talk yeah. about how, how you ended up ended up there because um, obviously you're growing up in Westport. Uh, you did you spent a lot of time working on fishing boats when you were younger, didn't you? I did. So it was pretty tough at times growing up in Westport because I was a very sensitive child. Being in Westport, was a lot of unemployment. We lived next door to so a real mix of individuals, not very savoury at times. Mum and dad not really around. Lots of freedom, free to get up to mischief. They would never. They didn't have a clue what was going on. An older brother who was pushing the boundaries big time. You know, setting a, a precedent for anybody who met me in the school system to basically think, "Well, you're a right little shit because yeah. you're so and so's little brother." He was abusive, you know, he's a violent kind of guy, very loved inflicting pain on me until I got big enough to basically put a stop to it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd been picked on a lot. I was bigger than everybody else, you know, at times overweight, chubby. I sort of built this defence mechanism and that's kind of what the whole motorcycle gang world was really about was a place that felt safe because they seemed powerful. I mean, when the... Devil's Henchman or the Highway 61 rode into town, whoever they were, everybody was like, ooh, you know, all the shop owners, mm -hmm. they looked like they just took over the place and did whatever yeah. they want. Everyone was scared of them. And and all I wanted to do was be safe and yeah. be protected and be left alone, yeah. funnily enough. And I've obviously unpacked a lot of stuff and understand that for many, many years of my life I lived with imposter syndrome where, and I still do to a certain degree, mm -hmm. but when you've been put down, picked on, you know, bullied. Bull the effects of bullying is long-standing. You, 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 I don't think you ever really get over it. You feel always feel uh, the feeling of vulnerability, and that's okay. I'm okay with being vulnerable. Mm. I think that's a really difficult thing for a, lot, a man, most men, to say, but I am. But I've had to work very hard to be able to just be open and feel vulnerable and... You know, and it's an ongoing thing. Mm. So I'm a million miles from where I was. Mm. And I suppose that's the 
key learning, right, is is to be able to feel vulnerable mm-hmm. and or to feel safe or to be protected at certain times in your life is a requirement of human development. And if it doesn't happen, if you're not getting, you know, the nurturing on, say, your, your mother's breast, mm-hmm. protecting arms of a father or being picked up and dusted off or mm-hmm. those kind of things at those appropriate times and you're subjected to nothing but hardship, you know, maybe violence. I was regularly beaten by my older brother and then abused at school. It was like he set me up to be a victim from the very first day I went to school. You know, I was just less than everyone else. Yeah. I felt less than everyone else, you know. I think it leads to a bigger kind of view of the world um, and my sense of going... It's like we understand what the perfect conditions are for creating the environment, the space to be able to raise whole, healthy, contributing adults. Mm -hmm. We're just constantly sort of fighting the tide. And it's a tricky one because the people who don't grow up with those challenges don't fully understand why the people on the other side of the street or in the other neighbourhood are such so stuck in yeah. where they're at. So the the epidemic or the cycle of poverty, abuse, blah, blah, blah. And the saving grace for me, I think, was the fact that I actually did have really decent parents. Yeah. They did the very best they could. And the difference between the guys I ended up mixing with later in life, you know, as a teenager and a young young man leading into my 20s, was they never had any of that. They were born into just hell. Yeah. Like they've no concept of love or trust or responsibility. And we see it here, right? There's this epidemic kind of ongoing, um, what do you call it, uh, intergenerational gang culture in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't know what we're doing about it. I don't see how we're intervening to, to sort of stop, you know. Um, there's so much pressure on parents today even mm-hmm. just to provide Right, it's tough. It's yeah. really, really tough. So, how did it how did it unfold for you then? So, you, you're in Westport. You're a you're a, yep. you're, a, you're a young guy. Um, you know, you haven't um, necessarily had a, a wonderful schooling experience, and you go into do some some work and some graft as, as as sort of needed as you left school. What was it? How did you end up joining the gang? So, I got the ultimatum: either you leave school, uh, or we'll kick you out. And away I went and worked couple of different jobs, first on a on a farm and then found my way to the local Tally's fisheries. And uh, by the time I think I was, you know, 15, I was there and I'd been given the responsibility. I was working on the filleting line and it was hard work and, and then I was given the responsibility for part-time while I think the call st- store manager was away, was, was to manage the call store. There was a guy by the name of Mana Moses who... Um, he went to Spain with a group of people who bought this new purpose-built factory trawler back from Vigo called the Amotel Explorer, the first of its kind in New Zealand. And he pulled me aside one day and said, you know, I'm going off to get this boat, we'll be back, and I reckon you'd be really good. I'd like to get you on the ship as a cadet in the factory to train you up to run the factory on board this 65-metre factory trawler that held 700 tonnes of frozen fish. So... That stuck in my mind, and when it arrived, I picked the phone up and I, because I didn't get the job, and where's my job? It hadn't happened, and I asked to speak to the managing director of Tally's Fisheries, Mr. Peter Tally himself, and I said, oh, I was promised a job on your boat. 
And he said to me, if you're here for next Wednesday, uh, you'll have one. So I basically got up there and that was it. And away I went on this fishing adventure. And part of that was out in, it was out in Nelson. And so the Lost Breed were a gang up there at the time, biker gang. And, and I bumped into one of these guys in the Lost Breed. And, you know, the first thing I did, I was making ridiculous money for a 16-year-old boy, you know, I was earning pretty good dosh, going to sea, not spending it, coming mm. back. So I bought myself a Harley. Uh, I think I just turned 17. It was an 883 Sportster. And I just had this whole thing about bikes I had done for years. And I'd had a couple of other other bikes. I had like a 50 Suzuki step through and then a Yamaha Ag 100, the old farm bike. And I was roaring around on those things. So I got this Brand new, beautiful ten thousand dollar eight eight three Sportster, and and then I started to you know bump into these guys, and I ended up buying a bike off one of the the lost breed and knocking around with him a little bit, and sort of you know hanging around the scene, and it, and on one trip that I was back, and I was on a holiday because I'd do six weeks on, three days home, six weeks on, and then six weeks off, and that six weeks off was just. Crazy. I used to have a great old time. You know, I had a valiant Regal Coupe as well in 1975, I think it was. No, 1972. Beautiful metallic blue. You know, I roared around the country, go skiing for three weeks. I I was just, you know, doing all these things, having all these adventures. But one trip back, um, this guy came into town who was a local fella. Uh, I knew his brother through rugby and he was in the Highway 61. And there was a bike race meeting going on for the Bears, which is the British European American Racing Syndicate, which I actually got into later. I uh, got into racing bikes. Um, there was a meeting in Hokitika, and they were all going down. Him and another guy who was an ex-member who'd settled in Westport, and so about half a dozen of us, these local guys with this patched-up Highway 61 rode down to Hokitika. You know, it was just a bunch of guys on the road stopping at the pub along the way, having a pie, you know, getting down there. Nothing, it was all pretty innocent really. And then when we got there, it all got a little bit hairy because the local West Coast bikers from Greymouth were affiliated with a a white power gang here in Christchurch. I don't think it exists anymore, called the Epitaph Riders who were sort of, you know, in the Highway 61 were mixed. This guy I was with, it was, you know, he's a Pakia, the red hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was this sort of bit of a standoff and a bit of a bit of argy bargy. Not nothing actually happened and and we left and away we went. And the way this guy kind of carried himself, like he was pretty staunch, you know, he just didn't back down. There was much more many more of them. There was only six of us, about twenty of these other blokes. And they weren't even a biker gang. But he was just, you know, right out there. He had his girlfriend with him, and she was a, a really attractive Maori lady as well, and and she was just as staunch as he was, and that's that just the power of that appealed to this damaged, vulnerable kid, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Of you know, this is how you have to be. That's how it started, and and initially. So the contact had, and what what I was planning to do was I'd been working on fishing boats, you know, for a few years, and I thought, well, you know, why don't I go to Australia? I felt like it'd be great to go over to Aussie. I'd heard about some of the boats over there out of Perth, and so that was the plan. And then this guy from Auckland, uh, he'd moved to Auckland. He was part of the Christchurch 61s. 
And um, I'd heard, you know, through him and through his brother that they were having a big run you know, around the whole of the Coromandel. So I was only, what, 18, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. I had a big 1340 Harley Davidson, which I'd bought off one of the lost breed. <laughs> uh, and uh, I went up there and I went on this run with them because the plan was to go on the run around the Coromandel, sell the bike, jump on a plane, go to Perth, go fishing. And, um, you know, I never left. It was just something about being on the road. There's about a hundred of us, and I think we were there for about eight, nine days. On the Coromandel, there was a, an affiliate fella who um, had a farm which he'd leased in a pottery which used to do these festivals called the Full Moon Festival, which is famous around the world, mm-hmm. but, you know, that was the local version. And so we were camped there, and at the same time there was this concert and festival, and and it was just like, you know... Um, We'd go out for rides on the bikes. We'd go out fishing. You know, the guys would go diving. There'd be kinners and crayfish and then the rock festival's going on and we're all camping. It was just, it was great fun, you know, partying, mm. having a great old time and roaring around with all these blokes. It was pretty intoxicating. Yeah, very so enticing. The, yeah. The, good, the, good, the good times were, and when it was all fun, you know, it was it was fun. Yeah, be it. For a young guy who's, yeah. you know, so I stuck around. Yeah, and so you joined the gang. Is I guess that becomes some sort of official point where you you, you join the gang, and um, so then you're part of the Highway Sixty Ones. You're based. Whereabouts are you based? In Auckland. You're based in Auckland. Yeah, yeah. out of Otahuhu. Yeah, um, and that was an interesting thing because they'd rented. Um, I don't know how they managed to pull this off. Actually, the guy who managed to pull it off was a guy by the name of Bad News Brown, who ended up in the media years later because he on charge of manslaughter. Anyway, he'd rented this mansion, Fairburn House. So then we had to kit it out. And um, so kitting it out was interesting because another guy by the name of Rockjaw had a big truck, a big old Bedford truck, and mm-hmm. getting it all kitted out with a with a big enough fence and, you know, a container, side of a container for the front gate and massive big railway sleepers for the fence. I mean, we were building a fortress. Yeah. was a matter of driving around with a half a dozen of us on the back of this truck collecting the things we wanted. And that was, you know, at night. Like they'd figured out where all these things were and set of bolt cutters and... Go and, and grab eat, it. Yeah, go grab it. So, you know, with absolute, just about no considerations yeah. or anything, just, you know, crazy. Like, and, even, and that for a, well, a kid who's damaged goods... Impressionable. It's a very impressionable is the word. Yeah, right, very impressionable. Mm. It's very easy to get sort of led into this, yeah, mm. and feeling of being free and powerful. Yeah. You know, uh, so it's a slippery slope. A bit. Yeah, very slippery slope. And yet at the same time I was always had one foot. I, I stayed working. I actually went back to – I stayed at sea. I got a job. You know, I kept working on fishing boats throughout the whole period. Mm-hmm. So I was only ever there part-time. Yeah. So it was a bit like I was around for all the good stuff and then I, a lot of the really bad stuff that happened happened while I was away at sea. Like there was one time I was out fishing and um, the Black Power turned up at a big party they had and it was a bloody big shootout, you know. Yeah. People were, like there was a guy, an old guy, but Mary Dave was his nickname. And uh, for years later, riding around, you know, for a couple of years later he'd be, We'd be at the pub and he'd be sitting there and he'd be like, oh, yeah, get his pocket knife out and a bit of buckshot out of his arm really? from one of the shotguns because he never went to the 
hospital, hospital yeah. things like that. Yeah. Look, it was, uh, and I, I kind of missed those things, but then when I came back, you know, we were at war with the Black Power for a period and next, there was drive-by shootings, they were shooting out the windows. I mean, you sit and <laughs> it's kind of like this, it was a little bit crazy because it's, to see, to even say this because it's like make-believe and, you know, a lot of, I've, I've learned through the years that people who uh, suffer trauma disassociate from their bodies and their feelings and so they're not fully there, which, is, which explains a lot of the behaviours. But there's an element of it is almost like playing a game. Yeah. You are playing a game of, but it's for real, man. It's no... Yeah. I mean, like, are there consequences for those actions when you're in that type of environment? Like, you know, I can absolutely understand what you mean. That Only if, if you get caught. Yeah. Did, you, that, did anyone get caught? Oh, when that shooting and all those things happened? What does it mean in general? No, right? yeah. not at that point. Yeah. So when the black power turned up, the police waited down the road, all the armed offenders, and um, so they all had guns and they just waited until the shooting stopped. And then they came and arrested everybody. Took whoever yeah. was lying on the ground bleeding. Um, yeah. There's one guy, you know, he's bleeding. You know, I think there's more than one to to a hospital, and then everybody was, you know, taken to the police station, yeah. and basically nobody no. talks. No one says anything. No one and says anything. A couple of days later, yeah. that's all. And what do they do? What are they going to do? Yeah. Who shot you? So you, you can know? you can see, certainly see why it's this. Um, you know, as a young impressionable guy, you know, this environment is very intoxicating because it's it's almost all fun and very little responsibility and mm. you sort of, you know, you've gone from this life that's, that's you know, you haven't necessarily felt safe and comfortable to being in this environment where you're, um, you know, you're, you're able to almost kind of do what you want and you're having wow. fun and partying and going where you want and um, you've, you've got this, this safety blanket over you, which I guess essentially the, is the, the patch you were on your back. Well, it was like a protective armour, yeah. you know, it's like people were going to hassle you, you know, and which is really sad when you think about that actually that's what I was really trying to achieve. Mm. I, I kind of got to the bottom of it. But there's also a big thing about belonging as well, and that was, you know, I really identified with that from a perspective of being an adopted child and never really knowing where I came from and not having that connection, which is why I th maybe it's such a challenge, especially, you know, with the Maori gangs here in New Zealand, why there is such this con strength and connection to this because it's actually also part of mm. family after family members getting gotten involved. But, you know, I've always felt like a fish out of water in, in Westport. I never felt like I really belonged. And I didn't see that till years later, mm -hmm. right, much, much, much later in its entirety. So 2015, you know, my fiance, we've been together coming up 10 years, she's Greek, you know, I live, live in Sydney now, right, and she's an amazing woman, who, you know, and her family are amazing people. And, and when I uh, met Kerry and then met her parents for the first time, you know, father passed away in 2017, sadly, but Jim, Dimitri was just the most loving, warm-hearted Man and mm -hmm. being, uh, and we we laugh about it. We talk about being wogs. We're both wogs, mm -hmm. you know. Like there's just this connection at yeah. a at a very uh, visceral level. Yeah. And and when he died, it was huge for me because he kind of was the first person I had that bond as a father with that felt primal. Yeah. And it wasn't until 2015 that I actually went to Montenegro and I met. 
some of my family. And like here I was, the Angelich family, uh, you know, I found out I had 400 relations in Serbia and 200 in Montenegro mm-hmm. and this massive family. And you see people who look like you. It's just, and then you're, you're, you're in their energy and in their presence and you start to, it put a lot of things sort of clicked internally in yeah. a way. Yeah, um, So I can... I was disenfranchised, very yeah. disenfranchised. Yeah, and I guess when you when you look back now, it's easy to say that, but at the time, no. you know, you're a young, you're a young lad. You you, no you, you can't articulate what's happening, but all of a sudden, you've got this primal instinct, this connection to this larger group and this safety blanket Correct. that you've that you've never had. Absolutely, and you're going, you're going for you don't know what reason. You're probably not even thinking about it, but you're going. You have no I idea. like this. Yeah. I like this. This feels more like family. Yeah, and then they're they're very coercive, right? Um, you know, they're very good at influencing and getting you hardened up, like just sort of jumping ahead. Looking through that period, you know, I was very fortunate that I didn't end up doing anything that I'd regret for the rest of my life and hurting anybody or, or getting myself killed. But people did around me. And that's what happened. And look, it all came to a head, you know, it was a couple of moments I had a couple of generally around motorcycle accidents. I had one three days before my 21st birthday where lying in hospital with an arm and, and a leg and plaster. It was actually here at the Christchurch Hospital <laughs> where I ended up. I had a crash in Kaikoura and I'd only just been patched and I was questioning everything. But I just didn't have the people around me to kind of influence me in a direction. Yeah. I just did not have anyone there. My dad came over from the West Coast and bought a chocolate cake that my mum had made. But, you know, he, he just didn't have the tools or the resources to sort of talk with me about it. I don't know if he really knew where to start. Uh, I imagine they probably felt very, because they're good salt-of-the-earth kind of people, I probably probably felt powerless and don't know what to do kind yeah. of thing. And would have I listened? I doubt it, like a lot of young, yeah, yeah. young men, uh, young men, young people, you know, yeah, it's hard. You know, it's yeah, hard to yeah. be. Sometimes it's yeah. hard to be reached. You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. Very, very closed off. Mm. And mm. Um, you ended up in Australia at some points, as well, didn't you? Was part of the gang, was that right? Well, I did. I went over in the mid- midst of it all. Um, during my time as what they call a prospect, I actually flew to Australia in the early nineties, like nineteen ninety, for about nine months and worked for a fishing company on a New Zealand boat that had been chartered by an Australian fishing company catching orange ruffy out of. Cape St. Helens, so I got a taste of mixing with the Highway 61 in Sydney, mm-hmm. and they were on a whole other level again. You know, they were kind of, they had nicer bikes and more money and you name it. You know, they were all sort of from the outside looking like they were doing pretty well. And, you know, then I came back. Um, is it, sorry to interrupt you. Is it, I know you've got a good. You're at a bar in Tasmania. There's a good, oh, there's a good story here. Well, that came a bit later. Actually, it was funny. That was after I'd been patched up, and you know the accident, and I'd kind of my bravado had pushed down the question of what am I doing here. You know, I got myself back on my feet, and ended up you know with this new bike. Got on a plane to Sydney, and I shipped my bike over there to be part of this bike show, which was you know, an Easter event every year called the Bankstown Motorcycle Show, which was hosted by the Highway 61 there. And we were on a run from after the bike show to Tasmania and around Tasmania, about 20 of us. And so that was, again, lots of fun, you know, riding down the the coastal highway, 
jumping on a, a sea cat from I think it's a place called Welshpool over to Beauty Point in Tasmania and parking up in Launceston. So we pull up in Launceston, go to the local motor camp. You know, we've got a big F100 truck following us along behind and set up tents and, you know, we got the all the gear for, you know, mm. it was pretty good. Going, going on a run was always good. It was a slick operation, yeah. It was a slick operation, you know. We had the support vehicles and, and, and the good the good life, so to speak. Then it was like, well, let's go to, down to the local club and uh, which or the local, you know, nightclub, um, have a have a few drinks, you know. <laughs> and part of that culture is, you know, see if you're gonna get lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so the odds were in my favour and off I went down there. We pulled up and the manager just said, Look, can you put your patches on your jackets in the uh, office? I'll lock them away. And, you know, we all had T shirts on. And uh, they were walking around with Highway 61 and Australia T shirts or Sydney or Adelaide or whatever. And I had this Highway 61 Auckland T shirt on. So I'm cruising around this bar and I noticed there's this dude who's following me and he was quite a big guy. He's about my size, you know, he looks a bit older. He's kind of, you know, he looked a bit of a, an interesting looking bloke. I thought he's following me, so I, I walked outside thinking, you know, I'll confront him out the front, you know, who, who are you, what's your game, mate, kind of thing. And um, what's he going to do? Who is he? And I was going to have a punch-up with him out the front. That's mm. how silly it was. But the bouncers were there, the security, so I sort of like, oh, yeah, I clocked him and then kind of looked at him and sort of walked inside and thought, I know I'll head to the toilets and see if he follows me. And he did. He followed me in there. I spun around. I was like, you know, starting to get ready to... And I said, do, do I know you, mate? And he put his hand out and he goes, Mark, Brandon, Reed, chopper. <laughs> and and he, I'm like, what? Oh, I saw you in a newspaper because it was this, there's no ears and he had this big scratch down the face and I recognised this photo of him standing there in the O'Reilly News one day when I was, you know, having a cup of coffee at a cafe reading the paper on the Sunday news and this guy you know, all covered in tats and his sunglasses and about his book that he'd released. And then so he was kind of fascinated by me being a New Zealand bikey. And um, that's why he was following you around the boat. That's why he was following me around. And so he he said, oh, I'll buy you, buy you a drink, you know. So I sat down at a bar leaner with him and that's that was a really interesting experience from there on because I'm like, okay, I'm sitting here with Chopper Reed. I didn't really know much about him apart from what I'd read in the newspaper. He's uh, says to me, you know, do you do you want to buy some guns? <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, I'm on holiday, mate. I'm thinking in my mind, um, you know. So he, um, I said, well, you know, being in a gang and being in that world, I got very good at being poker faced, obviously. So I just sort of looked at him and said, well, you know, what do you got? <laughs> Trying to be the cook, Mister Cool, not expecting what happened next, which is which he reached into his jacket pocket, pulled out a. 32 automatic pistol, put it on the Barlina and slid it over to me. So I'm sitting there at a Barlina in the middle of a packed nightclub going, man, where's the cops? I'm going to get busted. I'm going to get locked up. Oh, my God, I'm just on a holiday, mate. Give me a break. But that's all going on inside. And I just look at this thing and I think, okay, it's be cool. So I pick it up and I sort of weigh it in my hand, make it look like I'm checking it out. And then I slide it back to him and say, oh, yeah, put it away, mate. He puts it away. I said, and he said, I can get you 10 of them or something like that, you know. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. And I was just thinking, i got to get the hell out of here. 
Well, it's all I could think about was I'm going to get out of here and get on the road. You know, we'll be gone in the morning. So I said, I'll, I'll meet you back here tomorrow night after I've had a chat with the boys, but I'm going to head off now and I'll see you then. So away I went. I told one of the guys when I got back to the, the thing, I said, oh, back to the camp. This guy's name was Snake. He was a New Zealander who'd been living in Sydney for a long time. I said, oh, you never guess what just happened. Ra rah, 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 this bloke, blah, blah, blah. Told him the story and he turned around and said, oh, man, you should have shot him. <laughs> He's a narc. He's a police informant. Somebody would have paid you. He said, if it had been me, I would have blown him away. Self-defence. I seriously, now that was one of those moments in my life where I went, mm, hang on a minute. No, I'm not like these guys, you know. Like it was like the the record, a little bump on the old record. Yep. Went, eh. <laughs> Far out. So we got back. You know, I just did not compute, and and that was the beginning of me starting to think about, mm, you know, maybe I'm not quite like these guys. He was yeah. serious, yeah. and if anybody's seen the movie, they saw what happened with, oh, in the movie, I think the character's name Sammy the Turk, you know, which the movie came out later, and Sammy, oh, show us your gun, chopper, show us your gun. And he hands him over his gun, and, of course, he does. He tries to shoot him with it, but he didn't get the safety on, and Chopper pulls out a short-barrel shotgun, puts it to, and blows him away. End of Sammy the Turk. Now, that could all be myth in the world of Chopper Reed, or it could have really happened. Who oh, knows? It was nearly you. Well, but, you know. You were never going to shoot him, but I was goodness. never going to. See, that was yeah. a million miles away from me. So that that just sort of was like, mm. and then I went back to Auckland after that, having a great old time, and um, I was basically arrested for being involved in what what then was a one of New Zealand's largest car theft operations. I, you know, was associated with this guy, and I got done for receiving stolen goods, and. That was the the next thing that happened. And it wasn't until years later when I did some personal growth work and at a workshop and somebody said that life sends life will send you messages about whether you're heading in the right direction. You know, keep looking at the signs. Pay attention to the signs. Because if you don't, what life will do is send you a Mack truck. And then if you you don't take any notice of that one, it's going to send another one. This thing's going to roll right over the top of you. And then if you don't pay any attention to that, it's going to just reverse. And that's kind of what happened. Mm -hmm. So I, I got, you know, charged with receiving stolen goods, immediately sort of jumped back into going back to sea, kind of trying to avoid it, got, got a lawyer to try and keep it out of court because I was working, <laughs> which isn't a good strategy. And around the same time, the, the girl that I'd fallen in love with who I'd and I was a real cliche, you know, she was a stripper. I didn't even know I was in love with her. <laughs> but um, she looked awesome on the back of the bike. You know, it was all about, it was all a big image. It was all a big act. Mm. And, uh, you know, my heart was kind of burst wide open. I was freaking out about what's going to happen. Am I going to go to jail? And and I, so I did something I shouldn't really do, but I, at the time I, I went and bought a new new bike and tried to sort of stuff it all back down. And there was a 800 Ks on the clock on this 1993 Dyna Wide Glide Limited 90th Anniversary Edition bike. There was only five of them in New Zealand. It was beautiful. And um, we were up at the Puhoi pub and the guys were all sort of around me, working on me, kind of 
come on, mate. They could see I was shaky, you know, toughen up, you know, don't worry, you go to jail, you, you know, everyone will think you're staunch, you know, you'll be right. And I remember sort of pushing down all these feelings of, of and this is the whole bravado, young man, you know, I was, what, t- just turned 23 or something like that. And, yeah, 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 so you've got that coercion going on. And um, it was like a black veil came down. It was really like I shut a part of myself down, that feeling anxious side of things, that feeling vulnerable, I just blocked it off. Mm-hmm. And I got on the bike and away we went. And I'd spent the whole time in that period there, and you know, where I was emotionally shaky, which they knew I was emotionally shaky, kind of hanging back. But I was never like that because I used to race bikes and you know, I was always at the front of the pack. And I kind of went, no, nah, you know, and I rode to the front. And as I was trying to ride to the front, we came around a corner, seven bikes, uh, oh, one three, 350, uh, you know, Chevy 350 trike on the road with us as well, overtaking this truck full of timber. And three bikes went ahead. And just as I came to overtake it, it's locked its brakes up, smoke poured off the tyres and this big piece of white rag with timber on the back came sort of straight towards my head. It just matter of timing in the midst of the bunch as I went to overtake it and I sort of tried to swerve and the handlebar clipped to the side of the truck and bang, I was somersaulting through mid-air and time just stopped. That was my um, moment of total clarity and I just said, okay, okay, I get the message. I'll change my life and I hit the road and that was it. And it was just every part of me knew that this this was, I was going two places if I stayed where I was, either to prison or in a, in a grave. So I had to get out. And um, I did. That's That was, you know, I picked myself up off the, the road, a gravel rash and the bike was, you know, dented and oil pouring out the side and there was a farmhouse across the road that I went to and knocked on the door the Gang, the other gang guys, they were standing over the sort of tourists who'd caused the accident. Some German tourists were trying to find uh, a place called Sheep World. And they just stopped <laughs> in the road, you know, while they're navigating the map. And, mm. and that's how it all happened. So I was very fortunate that happened. And in that farmer's, the the, the wife of the farmer, and elderly, the, the place is gone. Now, I went and tried to go back years later, but she cleaned me up, you know. I, I had dropped my pants and cleaned all the gravel out of my knees and I just looked at her and said, you know, don't tell them, but this is it. I'm never going to ride with them again. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to become a good man. I'm going to turn my life around. I want to do good things with my life. I want to travel and see the world. And, um, you know, she just gave me that encouragement and I've reflected on what that was and it was in that time of absolute you know, collapse, that it would have gone completely differently the other way around, say, had the police pounced on me and, you know, bang, arrested me and given me no kind of compassion. She created this safe environment for me to express myself and that's what happened. And once you've kind of let that out, it's the power of speech, right, the power of language. Once you've made that statement, you're very difficult to go back from it. And um, and I didn't. I had no, not one part of me. It was like I was just, I I was time to go. And I also, like I said, I, I was not, in my view, anywhere near as 
traumatised an individual by the time I was 23 years of age as the people I was mixing with. I mean, they were well, way further down the track as far as um, shut down and and harder to reach. So I limped back to Auckland on the bike. It was still a bit rideable, you know, a bit bent. And um, after I'd healed three weeks later, I walked into a, a meeting and said, this isn't for me anymore. And uh, they gave me enough rope to hang myself. They gave me a, you know a little bit of time to see whether I was kind of on the edge, and I'd come back. And when they realised I had, and I got a phone call from the then president, give us your bike, or we'll put a bullet through your head. And um, they got it. You know, I, I, what are you going to do? I walked away, cut my losses, and and off I went. And that's when I. I just reached out for some help, and the only phone number I had was a person who my ex-girlfriend, the stripper's best friend's mother, um, Mary Morris was her name, and she answered the phone and said, how are you? And she never really thought that I fitted the mould. She'd met me and, you know, had me around for dinner, and I was this decent, nice nice kind of guy. And it was kind of weird, actually. Like people who saw me afterwards, there were kind of two things. I thought I was wild, just like a madman, like wild, wild on a bike, partying, having a great old time, you know, or I was just a, a nice guy. But from the outside, anybody looking at me, I looked really scary, this big scary-looking bikey, and that's kind of, you know, easy to hide behind. And yeah. so I was hiding. She just asked, how are you? And, you know, sometimes you answer and, and I said, I'm a mess. I've got no idea where I'm going in my life. Uh, you know, what am I going to do? And so she said, I can help you with that and told me about this personal growth workshop. It was actually called Money and You. And I was, I'd was i latched onto anything, you know. I was like, I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. And, like, you know, I, I look back now and realise that I've kind of been, I've had that approach to everything that I've ever done in my life is like, whew, Full on. When I was, you know, I was a captain by the time I was 20 in the fishing industry, you know, I never believed in myself. But come on, let's get real here. Mm. You know, I was, I've always done, yeah, yeah, I've always achieved what yeah. I was set out to do. So it was about being focused on the right things. And yeah. Money and You started the process of breaking down. Yeah. And then that just continued on. You know, because I imagine that's a difficult process. You know, you're, you're, you you recognise, you know, maybe in this process, but certainly on reflection, that you came from a background where you didn't have much of a, a belonging or, or a connection to. You find that sort of emotional safety in the gang environment, and then you decide to, you know, that's uh, you really recognise deep down that's not where you need to be, and so you leave, and then you kind of it's almost like maybe starting again. You sort of like you you lost that that one connection, that one safety blanket or armour you had then is, is is taken away. Well, it was taken away and I felt very vulnerable. Um, I remember at the time, you know, and the way I visualise it and express it now was like I, I felt like a baby would feel, I imagine, on a cold concrete floor with a fire hose on, turned on me. That's how intense the feelings are when you're that vulnerable and you don't know what to do with it. But there was no other choice as well. And so I wonder whether that's strength of character to be able to face that is potentially genetic. Because if you look, and this is when you get into the realms of, well, why and how could you do that? Well, one aspect is that I had had good experiences as a child 
as well as some real tough ones, mm. but I'd had some great times growing up, you know, skiing and playing rugby and surfing and life. And so I knew that life could be a lot, feel a lot better than it was. But, it, and also there's a an element of where I came from. So in Montenegro, you know, 600 years of fighting the Ottoman Empire and never surrendering. And, and when I met my birth brother, He's a very strong man, very lot of presence. He's a doctor of engineering. You know, Dr. Angelic, he's highly intelligent. He was raised in, in Sumner for till about the age of 13 and then. But um, there's a real strength there in the yeah. people as well. So I yeah. think maybe I just had nature the, right, and nurture, yeah. the right kind of um, stuff there yeah. to be able to face it and turn it around. But. So you do that course, you do this money and you course, yeah. money and me course, and yeah. sort of what's the result of that that sort of makes you take the next step? Well, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing because the course is all, of, it's really a gamification of trying to get you to see how you play the game of life, and it's less about money and more about you. <laughs> and uh, without going and giving away all the details of it, there's processes and games that you play which because they're a game and you're playing them, uh, they actually open you up to have to express feelings which you wouldn't normally express. So this put you in a situation where you would avoid in life. You would avoid that situation, but because it's been gamified, it's like it's safe to go there and away you mm. go. They talked about what that creates, a, a perturbed vibration in your body where when you're stressed and trying to achieve something, things get unearthed. Because so you're basically being stretched open. Mm-hmm. So there's a way of stretching you open, and and the themes of one particular game, and the whole weekend is leading. To, it's like three days leading to this one game, where what they're actually asking you to do is being, in essence, be able to communicate the, not only visually and physically demonstrate, but also make other people feel the essence of love trust and responsibility and that's like whoa whoa. with some blocks on a table and eight other people yeah together you have to do that yeah to it's like it's really intense and you know how many people would put themselves in that situation but i was up for it because you know i had nothing to lose i'd hit the rock bottom and um so it just opened me to more i just wanted to do more and so i craved more and i did more courses and more things and then away i went um in life i was really adventurous and so i did uh, money and you power and leadership future warrior about all about looking at so power and leadership was about your power as an individual of what you could do and get people to follow you and support you. Mm-hmm. And then Future Warrior was about being a man in the world at that time, you know, 1994, before I went to drama school in 1995. So what is a man? It was very primal and awesome, empowering. And and what I kind of realised was, <laughs> it's funny enough, is that I wanted to be an actor and then how that came about was at Power and Leadership. They had this this whole process, lots of games again, all about, you know, opening you up. And, um, I mean, there's a message here in rehabilitation, right? There's opportunities that 
maybe I wonder how we're doing it currently in the world. Is 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 that the right way we're doing it? Could we do it a different way? But um, long story short, I ended up the leader of this group and we were doing all sorts of other activities and games and you got paid when you won, so we were making money as well. But one of them was where what they'd done is handed out everybody a tape with a song on it. And nobody knew what they got. They just randomly got it. And then over the period of the weekend, it was like four-day, your name would get picked out of a hat and you'd have to get up and perform it. And the, the, the remit for performing the song was that you had to be the performer. And I got Madonna's Like a Virgin. <laughs> so <laughs> here I was and I had long hair still and a beard you know, I hadn't quite shared everything of my former past and I was up there, I was giving it everything I got, you know, and funnily enough, I was years before the lead singer in the school, primary school choir, you know, So I'd, and I'd been on stage a lot as a kid and I loved it. It was a place where I felt most free and oh, I was giving everything I got and the guy who was facilitating it was a man by the name Brendan Nichols from Sydney and he, he said, who thinks he's hiding. Come on. Who really, you know, they were really getting you to get out of yourself and like a virgin. And so next, and they had somebody out in the wings uh, who was a stylist and they pushed me out, sat me in this chair, gave me a haircut, gave me a shave, put a leather jacket on, threw a pretty cool sunglasses and pushed me back out in front of everyone again. And the girls all erupted. They were like, Ooh, you know, squealing. And, and I had to perform it again. And I'd always believed that I was fat, ugly, and nobody loved me for ever. And I, you know, I had to live with this. Still, 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 still a little shred of it there, like, you know. Um, but that's not who was in front of them. They saw this tall, dark, handsome young man who had all this personality and not a charisma and not a bad voice. Mm. And he just didn't see himself. Yeah. And in that moment, did you, like you, you know, they saw that in you, but when you walked off that stage that day, you must have, you must have felt something that you recognised that this yeah. is what I have to do now. Well, and the only way to explain it is that I'd grown and he asked when I was at that place of expansive, expanded person, beingness, you know, open, putting it out there, what do you really want? What do you really want? And I just went, I want to be a movie star. That was in the moment. And that was where it kind of led. I, they said, don't make any decisions for seven days. So I, I resigned at the, uh, the job I had. At the time I was working up at Whakapapa Ski Field because I'd skied a lot as a kid, but I was working there for a year while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, clearing the roads, driving a bloody big grader, and uh, I quit, went back to Auckland, <laughs> and I thought, right, and I basically offered my services free to the company that ran all these courses because they did corporate sales training. And I was like, I've got to be an actor. I need, How do I do that? And then I was like, well, I need to figure out life and what I'm going to do. And life's about sales. So I volunteered to this company called Business Innovation Group who did the personal growth workshops because they would do corporate training during the day to fund it. And I sat in the back making cups of coffee while they did this sales training for a company called Bartercard who had just started in New Zealand. And um, after about 
I don't know, the second day, I was like, this is a great idea, I could do this. So I sort of bailed up the managing director and said, hey, he had no idea, but he was he knew that I'd come from this money and new environment and that people could be a bit out there and, you know, kind of find themselves. So he was a little gentle with me and I was like, man, that's a great idea, I could sell this, you should give me a shot, you know, rah, rah. So he fobbed me off to his general manager and I finished, you know, that sales training and uh, I basically picked the phone up and I called him for like two weeks every third day. You know, g'day, John. How are you? Jeff here. Just wondering if I can come in and, you know, have a chat to you about coming and working for you. And so he walked into the managing director's office and said, you remember that guy we met? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy is a bit out there. <laughs> and uh, John said, look, I think if he deals with prospective customers the way he's dealing with me, he'd be really good. <laughs> so they took a punt. And the director, uh, unfortunately, his name, he passed away on a motorcycle accident years later. His name was Kerry Gordon. Kerry said, okay, let's get him in, give him a shot. And so they gave me three days of one-on-one sales training on how to sell barter card. And he gave me the keys to his RX-7. So that's in the 90s, right? And the RX-7 is like cool as. He had no idea about my sort of history, <laughs> really. And away I went. And in the first month I outsold their sales manager because I just you know, start at the top of a building and go to every business there or start at the end of a street and go and knock on the door. I was like, hey, you got to hear about this thing. There's barter cars, just my enthusiasm and just zero fear and total belief that this was good for them. It'll help your business. And I was very successful with them for about nine months and then they asked me to become a manager and set up the brokerage in Tauranga. But by this time, I just had to go to drama school. So in the process of all that, the power and leadership thing and so I said no I've got to go I've got to go to drama school so I auditioned for two drama schools in New Zealand drama school Toy Fakati in uh, Wellington and that was where at the time I was working so I was working in Barakar during the day and at night I was doing lessons with Raymond Hawthorne um, a very well-known New Zealand director who's a lovely man and I'll never forget one night I was um I stayed late, you know, waited till Raymond and all the other students and I kind of cornered him and I was like trying to get some guidance on, you know, how to get where I wanted to go. And I said, look, you know, how do I win an Oscar? <laughs> this is my, so very naive, very raw. And he was like, well, uh, he was quite taken aback, I think. But he, you know, he thought I had some talent and a lot to learn. Uh, but Enthusiasm to burn you. Yeah. And he just said, you need to go to drama school. And that was it. Right, I'm off to drama school. Now, along the way, selling barter card, I bumped into a guy who I'd met years before randomly who was a stuntman, and he couldn't believe he'd bumped into me. He bought a ute off me. He saw me in this tie shop dressed in a suit and tie, and he was like, what, what happened to you? Because he recognised me. Um, and I told him, and, and he said, uh, well, have you ever done any fighting? And and I'd boxed and done martial arts as well as a bit of Thai kick, kickboxing as well. So I had a few skills and he said, well, we're shooting this American syndicated TV movies, uh, The Legendary Journeys of Hercules. And so I ended up in NZ Stunts as a stuntman, which kind of worked really well with me then auditioning for drama school. And I got into the New Zealand... Academy of Singing and Dramatic Art in Christchurch and in my holidays I'd fly back to Auckland and work on set with Herc and Zena and Lucy Lawless and 
you know, that was just amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the world had kind of just changed a lot for me in a rapid short period of time. How many years is that? What's the, what's the time frame from you, um, you know, having the crash and, and being in the gang to um, working on Xena and Hercules? And it was in a two-year time frame, Goodness. basically. It was actually less, more like 18 months. Wow. It just went from that to that. Yeah. And look, all of the work I did shifted, was able to facilitate the paradigm shift. Yeah. And then life kind of took its own, another course and, and I met a girl while I was at drama school, not f- who was at drama school, but she was at the gym. And uh, I ended up married and having children and trying to manage and juggle all of that, build a career as an actor. And the world of sales came along with me and I ended up in Auckland for a number of years and then back down in Christchurch where I was working at the Court Theatre doing some productions and I was also moonlighting across the road at a restaurant cooking with gas. And uh, so when I wasn't rehearsing at the court or I was there and so I'd start singing along with the Sammy Davis Jr. on the soundtrack or Frank Sinatra or whatever it was because I'd done all this music theatre training and I'd get some great tips, especially from the Aussie customers. You know, they were awesome that came in. And one night there's a bloke there by the name of Chris Broderick, I think his name was. He was on the board of the then Canterbury Opera, and he walked up to me and said, you've got a good tenor voice, you should call the opera company. And while I was at drama school, we'd had a, a, an older singer come out from London who was a bass, Grant Dixon, who'd been performing at Covent Garden and around the world and around Europe and Germany and whatnot, and he'd pulled me aside and sort of said the same thing, you know, what do you want with your career? And I was like, well, Harrison Ford's job looks pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And he had this deep voice and he said, I think you're setting your sights too low, you know, and he said, I think with training and, you know, time, you'd be a highly sought-after singer on the international scene, you know, as a tenor. So I parked that. I was 25 when that happened, 26. And that was brewing in the background. And by the time I bumped into Chris Broderick, I was like 32. And a few years had passed and I went, okay. So on the Monday morning, I walked into Canterbury Opera and said, well, everyone keeps telling me I should be an opera singer. So I thought I'd better check it out. And they sent me off to a singing teacher to to do a session with. And she said, oh, yeah, he's got a good voice. He's got potential. Next thing you know, I was in the chorus of singing second tenor of Canterbury Opera's production of Turandot, and this is like 2002, and I just loved it. I just loved it. It was like it just the wow. I was taken by the whole thing, everything. I said, like, I have to do this, I have to do this, and then I kind of looked, the more I looked into it, I realised, oh, well, I'm a tenor and I'm tall and, you know, there's probably a good chance tenors and everybody's, oh, tenors get lots of work. But there's also this underlying kind of thing that was going on which was about needing to be seen and needing to be special. Those two things came together. So there's an unhealthy element in it as well, to be honest, to be real. So here I was, the lead singer in the school choir when I was a little boy, always on stage, loving it, naturally skilled and gifted. And if I'd been not grown up in Westport and, you know, grown up in an environment where that could have been nurtured and, you know, who knows, uh, 
Covent Garden, here I come. Mm. But at 32, to start stepping into that with a, and then having a go at it and believing I can go there was an incredibly big leap of faith and fraught with risk. But I did it. I did do it. So I worked and the moment I've kind of made that choice that I really want to go for it and see if I can make it on the scene as an international tenor, I've got a lot of catch up, but I better get a real, real job. And that's where I decided to get into sales around e-commerce and software because I thought, well, that's all growing. The internet's getting bigger. So let's get into that. So I got myself a, a role in a, a company in Christchurch and then I started to get involved in the world of opera. And then along the way, people found out about me and I got some people who got on board to support me. And by 2006, you know, I'd started to get a little bit up the ladder, but I still need a long way to go. So I was 36 and there was a syndicate formed. And that came out of the opening of what was then called the Telstra Clear Event Centre in Manukau City in a twist of fate. So, you know, been divorced for quite a while. Uh, the night I separated, uh, I stayed at a friend who's the owner of the time, cooking with gas, and he had a friend from Auckland who was down who was the CEO of the Telstra Clear Event Centre, and he was like, who are you, what are you doing? And I would basically, I was a wreck. I was a nervous breakdown, you know, marriage falling to bits. But he said, oh, come on, let's sing us a song, and I sang him a bit of Ave Maria, and... He clocked that away in his mind and, you know, he's one of those kind of individuals and we kept in touch. And so nine months later when I fixed myself, I lost my voice for about three months because of the the, the whole impact of separation, splitting up and all of that. But once I started to get back on top of it, he invited me to come to the opening of the Telstra Clear Event Centre because what came out of it was when he told me where it was, it was in a paddock down in near Manukau City, Manurewa, there's a block of land on the side of the motorway there. And um, that used to have an old farmhouse, which used to actually be the headquarters for the Highway 61. So I, when he told me what he was doing, building this event centre that was going to open at the end of the year, you know, 50-something million dollars, and I went, oh, man, I used to drag race up your driveway, mate, you know. So I hear, he got me up there. And, uh, yeah, it was black tie and and I was sitting at the back with his assistant, funnily enough, and um, uh, he came up to me at the end of the night and you had Ray Wolf and Tina Cross and all these amazing people and, and um, Helen Clark was, you know, Prime Minister then. She was there at the opening and he said, would, you close, will I, would I close the event and sing an aria? So he'd facilitated all of this, right? He was trying to create an opportunity, a platform to see whether I would step up. And if I had shrunk away and gone no, which if you think about where I came from, I would have totally, never would have been there, wouldn't have gone there, but all the work I'd done about opening, expanding, I was just like, yeah, man, I'm there, you know. I've been through drama school. Give me five minutes, so I'm just going to go to the toilet and have a quick warm-up. And I did. I sang uh, Panis Angelicus in front of everybody, you know, over a 1,000 people, a cappella, couldn't hear a pin drop. And following that, Richard came up and said, uh, have you heard of Scott Dixon? <laughs> he thought he saw potential. And look, the other thing about Richard, he was, because what he did was he went on to not only build the event centre, he built a whitewater rafting park in there, which 
And a big motivating piece of that was because he understood that many of the lower socioeconomic families around there, they'd never seen water. They didn't matter that the beach was only 10 k's away. They never got there. And what his goal was was to be able to build this facility which could not only cater for world-class Olympians who are in the canoeing and various things but and, and um, corporate events and all of that kind of at the event centre, but and that would fund bringing these kids in to give them a different experience, mm-hmm. which is absolutely 100% in line with what, that's one of the things that got me out. I had been fortunate to have a different experience because he knew these kids would bring, you know, to put it really bluntly, dad's a mongrel mob, you know, whatever, mum's an alcoholic or a meth addict or goodness knows what, and just get these kids from these schools engaged and actually trusting and stepping out of their environment, trusting people around them to keep them safe, following instructions, really simple stuff. But what what an awesome man, big heart. So that was the beginning of the creation of this thing called Nightstar Covenants, which was about getting shareholders to invest in Jeff to have a crack. And that's what happened for a few years until the GFC hit and, you know, funding dried up. And fortunately enough, I was had my career in sales that had kind of been there and I was able to rekindle that a lot more and, and, and keep trying to move forward. But... You know, it's fascinating. I worked with a lady in Brisbane along the way in 2010, 2011, because I moved to Sydney with the with the sole goal of getting a higher level of private tuition. The new, you know, the funding was going to dry up. I knew that, so I was going to have to make my own way. Uh, but I was always trying. I'd always been given the message, and this this kind of going back a couple of years to before this got set up. Uh, Grant Dixon was there was a, a guy who came out from uh, Welsh National Opera with his wife who was a international soprano and he, I think he was a, a director or he was a conductor and he organised for me to have a session with him where I sang for him to really have, you know, has this guy got some potential to go the distance? And he said, absolutely, but what you must do is find a way to get into a young artist programme with a company like... Uh, Opera Australia, for instance, because they were big enough that they, and they did enough productions and they had a language and music department. So they had, you know, Italian, French, German coaches. Get in, get in there and you'll find your way. But, and I could never quite break that door down. And I remember working with a soprano and uh, who'd come back from Italy. You know, she was a teacher. She taught one of Australia's top baritones who I'd also met at Canterbury Opera. His name was... Um, Jose Carbo, had he'd said, go and see Margaret. Margaret will help you. She's helped me a lot. Um, she said to me, the audience will love you. They will love you. They'll love your voice and they'll love you. But I don't think the opera companies will give you the chance to get there. And in a way, that was because, you know, I just hadn't enough time. It takes years of training to develop the language and musical skills and I was still just, you know, on the back foot. And I actually bumped into this a lot. So if you haven't come through the right, unless you're a freak of nature, like a freak of nature where you've got this astounding instrument, you come through a very 
well-trodden path, you know, often probably singing in church or school, go through a conservatorium, you know, do three language degrees, a master of music, then get accepted in winning competitions. And remember, there's just one percent yeah. get to work. Yeah. And everybody else falls by the wayside. So it was a big ask. And along the way I realized I wasn't going to quite get there. Uh it just became very apparent. Um but I got to do some smaller gigs. I got to, you know, sing some roles um with smaller opera companies in Sydney. And around twenty fifteen was when I just went, you know what? I think I need to find another path. And what do I have to offer? You know, people had always said to me, and whenever I share my story, and it was always framed in, you know, what you represent is the world of possibility, that if people are willing to be courageous or be vulnerable or ask for help or put themselves out or actually, you know, put their hand up and say, I don't know what it looks like, I don't know, but where I am is not good and I need some help, get me there, give me a hand, whatever, take a step in the right direction. The magic can happen because when you think about the life story and I see that, you go, whoa, all these things I've done and all these experiences. So I felt like, well, if I could be a catalyst for anybody who will listen to hear that story and think, wow, you know, there's ways that I'm playing small in life or there's past experiences that have impacted me and shut me down that I should probably unpack so I can move forward or my behaviours and patterns of behaviours and conditioning or approach to dealing with others is being influenced because of my experience, then I should maybe get some new tools. If I can at least open the possibility of mind up to be even consider that, then that's great. You know, that's great. So, and at the same time, I want to build an audience and I love to sing. And that's when I really started to push more and focus around doing, you know, corporate events, speaking as a guest speaker. Mm. And because of the power of the story and the spectacle and, you know, my skills, I suppose, from years of, you know, being in the arts off and on and my training, you know, I can be a pretty wow factor. Put on a show. Put on a big show. I can attest to that, yeah. Yeah, so... That's kind of what's happened along the way. And then with COVID, obviously, that, a lot of that got shut down. Mm. You know, it was yeah. just big time because, yeah, you know, Jeff Knight riding in on a Harley Davidson and off onto the stage and mm. belting out a big aria and then phew, taking you through this transformational story and journey is... Um, it's a bit harder on Zoom, isn't it? It's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, and it's a remarkable story, and um, you know now you've got a, a very sort of successful career in, in sort of cyber security, I think, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so you know, well, really, since 2015, I was able to, and I've always been able to do this: manage, you know, my artistic or the the corporate speaking and performing side of my life with my corporate life, which has been in sales and. 18 years of experience in in sales, in technology solution selling, right, Mm. which is my view on sales is really that, and this kind of comes to the crux of what I'm I'm about as an individual, is I really believe that we are here to grow and expand ourselves. Now, we can't be responsible for anybody else, not really, apart from our children, you know, we're responsible for them as well, right? Right. But ultimately, 
It's just us having this experience of life. So we can be responsible for the influence we're going to have on other ones. You know, we can have the best of intentions. How somebody sees us, views us, depends who, what lenses they're looking at us from through, you mm. know. One person sees, you know, one thing and another person sees one person. hears one thing, hears another thing. But fundamentally, how can I help people expand and grow? How can I help? organisations expand and grow. And, you know, I'm a big believer in that that's the kind of education that's really needed, not some, you know, sure, you've got to be able to read, write and do arithmetic because those are functions, but what is the human operating system and how do you master it? What's your operating system? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? What, you know, that's the kind of where the next level of, uh, education needs to go in the, for the human race. Yeah, it's, and, it's, and it's amazing, you know, like like I said, to, to come from where you did to end up, you know, where you are now and, and some of the stuff you've experienced along the way. And I know, you you know, you're, you're big on now and sharing your story and helping, you know, inspire, you know, young people and anyone else that hears your story is, is certainly inspired. When you sort of reflect now, do you, would you change anything? Oh, look, Absolutely. I can't change anything, right? But it would be wrong to for me to say that through my ex- look, I wouldn't be the person I am, and and I wouldn't been able to add the value that I've had. So it's worked out okay. But you know, was there a better way of doing things? Yes, there is. Does somebody have to make my mistakes to learn? No, they don't. They can learn from me. They can learn from somebody older and wiser who's made a few mistakes, right? The responsible thing to do is say absolutely. If I was able to reinvent Jeff Knight and he would be different, I might not have been able to change the circumstances that I was born into this world as because none of us can. We have zero control. You know, if you're born white male within, you know, a Western country and, you know, with middle-class parents, then you've already basically landed on your feet. You are miles ahead of so many other people. So we can't control that. But how I reacted to those things, I can't change that. But if with, with the foresight or with the tools at the time, nobody intervened to be yeah. able to instruct me to go, hey, you know, nobody back then in school was going, gee, you know, this older brother's a bloody problem. Yeah. You know, how's, what's the impact on his little brother? And yeah. she, we don't want him to end up going down the same path as him because that would be a nightmare, but that's not what happened, man. Yeah. They just tarred me with the same old brush and I had no no future apart from what happened, happened. So I had no control over it until, you know, later. And then I've been work and I've never stopped and I'm still evolving. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I would if I could reinvent and mm. go back through, I couldn't change the circumstances, but I'd certainly change how I would respond. I'd certainly would have, made, if I had the knowledge I have mm. now, hindsight, twenty twenty yeah, vision. Yeah, I mean, all of us are probably the same, isn't it? When you, you, it's uh, you have to make mistakes sometimes to have the wisdom and hindsight and experience to do it. And hey, we'd all be in different places. But I think that now, with the way you know the the work that you do now, you know, it certainly wouldn't, you know. It's the life experience you've had to date that's, that's given you the, 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 the position to give the value, which you do now. Yeah, look, and, you know, I just think how do I, that would be one area, how do I be a voice for a yeah. better better quality of man in the world? Because yeah. I've worked very hard to be a really good man, you know, a really good man. And I, like the drinking culture in New Zealand is, is 
same same in Australia, and the 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 blokeism and the the idea that you know boys don't cry, you know, uh, or share their express their feelings. It's just so antiquated. It's just you know, mm-hmm. and a man's tough. Uh, men have got to be tough. The strongest man is the one who's willing to be able to be vulnerable and to be to remain open. Mm. How do we empower our men to embrace their power, young men, to not dilute it, waste it, to not abuse it, to not abuse anybody? Yeah, you know. How do we how do we how do we build that kind of culture? Hold each other to a higher standard. Yeah, well, I think you do it by living it. You know, like it's always by example that you. It's certainly not an easy battle, but you know, change comes from from action rather than talk generally. And I think that you know, with the stuff you're doing, the work you're doing, and the example that you set, you know, you've brought up a son, you know, and he's like that. And so you know, he'll go forth and hopefully have children of his own maybe one day if he wants, and he'll do the same to that. And I think that's sort of the, the ripple effect is. It starts small and seems insignificant at the time, but um, over a long period of time, hopefully, we'll we'll see some change. When you look back, last question: What are you most proud of? You know, like it's a it's a crazy goddamn story you've got. Well, you I know, know, it is crazy, right? And uh, and it's a crazy life you lived. And there'll be people listening here that go, like, is this real? You know, well, it's probably two sides to this. So, there's what am I p- most proud of from myself as a as a, as a man, and you know, what am I most proud of? I'm without doubt most proud of my children. I actually have six children. I have a son that I didn't know I had until years later who's, you know, he's a, we've met and uh, we've had interaction over the years. He wasn't looking for a dad. He was just wanting to know where he came from. He's a good, good young man. I'm proud that there's somebody else out there, you know, that I of, of that, and then I have... Five children from my my marriage, you know, uh, four daughters and a son, and I'm most proud of them. They're the thing I'm most proud of. Absolutely, they're not a thing, but yeah. you know what I mean. And, yeah. and the thing I'm most proud of about myself, and I, I've had to, because I haven't succeeded at everything I've attempted. Look, I am a responsible member of society who is contributing every single day and doing his absolute best to have a positive impact on others, on the people, on my on my loved ones and the people I meet along the way. And I'm coming from a place of wanting to, to really get the greatest outcome, to be that person. And I'm continually committed to growing and improving and having the best impact I can on those around me. And that I'm able to fully love yeah, I'm most proud that I've got to that place. Like, yeah, definition of success, mate. That's amazing. The world's my oyster from here. <laughs> mate, well, that's um, that's incredible. It's a, you do have an amazing story. You know, we talk about how you know you're passionate about some pretty important stuff, and I think that um, you know we talk about example being the way to make change. And I think with the you know the the work that you do, and and certainly the messages that you share, um, and the life that you lead, more importantly, is certainly. Um, you know, they're not easy tasks, but we're making progress towards those things. So, look, I'm really appreciative of your time. Thank you for sharing so so openly and honestly. It's a it's a pretty raw story at parts, 
podcast, but um, I think that um, you know you've got a message there that's, that's that's transparent to a lot of people. That regardless of um, of the circumstances you may find yourself in, there's a um, there's a there's a way to to make things better. And if you take responsibility and you you know you work hard and you commit to it and you you, you don't give up, then there's certainly an opportunity in front of most of us. So um, Jeff Knight, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks for having me. And there it is, Jeff Knight. What an amazing man. What an amazing story, man. It, it almost doesn't seem real at some points, but uh, he's an incredible guy and he's um, you know, been through obviously a hell of a journey and, and to come out and be doing some of the amazing work that he is doing now is, is just incredible. And uh, man, some amazing parts in there. Chopper Reed, you just, it's hard to believe. But uh, thank you so much to Jeff Knight for his time. I, I really appreciate it. And of course, thank you to you as well. Thank you for checking out the Road to Success podcast. I love doing these. I love having conversations and the the fact that uh, people like you like listen to them, it really means the world to me. And if you did enjoy today's episode, if you took something out of it, or maybe you're just feeling particularly generous today, if you could follow the podcast and whichever platform you're listening to it on, if you can rate it, there's the ability to leave like a star rating, if you can leave a star rating. And of course, if you could share the podcast as well, if you took some value out of today or another episode, just hit the share button and send it directly to a friend or family member so they can listen as well. It helps grow the podcast and I get to have more conversations just like this so hey again thank you so much to Jeff thank you so much to you for listening it really does mean the world to me have a lovely day talk to you next time love you see ya bye